And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Good morning, everyone. Um, uh, My name's Jeremy. I'm one of the uh, leadership team here at Egbeth Community Church, and another uh, warm welcome to you. Um, And uh, we're going to be looking together uh, at what Rob's just read for us. Uh, for the next um, uh, uh, few moments. Um, before we do that, let's, let's pray and ask for God's help uh, because we will need that. So let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you uh, that you are here with us this morning um, and you're with us in uh, grace and love um, and you are uh, with us uh, because you love us Uh, with all that we are and all that we bring. Uh, We want nothing more, Father, or we should want nothing more at least than 
to know and see Jesus more clearly um, and to love him and be in awe of him all the more. And so as we look at this passage, which perhaps is, is very familiar to us, perhaps less so, but we ask that you would uh, open uh, our spiritual eyes that we might see Jesus and love him more clearly. And we ask that for the sake of uh, your name. Uh, amen. Um, so let's keep, uh, keep Mark chapter 2 open in front of us there. Um, about nearly 25 years ago now, um, which is a scary thing to say, as part of my medical studies, I spent uh, six weeks in India. They were, they were really good times. Uh, you can imagine six weeks in a, a fascinating country like India. You see all sorts of interesting and fascinating things culturally, uh, amazing mountains, uh, torrential monsoon downpours. Um, and as a medical student, I was there to see some memorable medical cases as well. Um, there was a, a, a man I remember with diabetes whose leg we amputated without a proper anaesthetic. I say we. I stood there and held the leg. Someone else did the amputating. But it was memorable. Um, sorry, I've made you laugh. And now I'm going to tell you about a little two-year-old girl who died with a, a bleeding bowel. Uh, countless cases of, of TB. Uh, the hospital I worked in was the only one for miles around. Uh, and not much happened for much of the day, but then suddenly you'd hear a commotion outside, the screech of brakes on a car, uh, the, the shout of, of panicky voices. Um, in would come the patients in their desperation. They travelled for hours often, often on foot, sometimes for days, in the hope that something could be done for them. Um, so I can still see those parents of that girl and her, her pale little face now. Uh, I can see their faces, I can hear their voices, everything about those patients just screaming, help me. Um, I remember too the countless, countless children at, at railway stations, squatting on platforms, begging. Um, or one boy who I think had a condition um, called elephantiasis, he had this, just the most enormous leg, some disease in his leg. His leg was just, just enormous, about six times the size of the rest of his body, and he's shuffling along the railway station, barely able to, to drag this leg along behind him, trying to catch my eye or, or the eye of anyone else who looked like they might have some money. Desperation. Of course, we don't have to travel to, to India to meet desperation. There's plenty of it on our doorstep too. But those people and those images, those sounds have stayed with me down the years. There, there is something painful, isn't there? Something haunting about seeing someone in desperation. You hear it in their voices. Perhaps it's an anguished scream or, or just a, a quiet whisper. You see it perhaps as they throw themselves on the ground in front of you. You see it best, I think, probably in their eyes. It's hard to meet the eye of someone who is desperate, isn't it? It feels like their gaze kind of penetrates you, makes you feel hopeless and, and helpless yourself, perhaps even guilty for not being in their shoes and, and not being able to help them, perhaps. You don't forget the look of desperation, do you? When you read these opening chapters of Mark's Gospel, you realise that desperation is what Jesus met all the time. We saw last week desperation, the desperation of the leper who flung himself at Jesus' feet, imploring him in chapter 1, verse 40 there. And we saw last week, too, 
if you were here, how Jesus' popularity was on the rise. Crowds were following him everywhere, listening to him teach, which he said was his priority, but desperate for his healing power as well. Each one of them desperate in some way or another, traveling for miles to see him, bringing their problems, coming to Jesus for help. What was it like for Jesus to encounter desperate people? How many desperate eyes met Jesus' eyes? How many shouts of, of, help me, reached his ears? And what was that like for him? What must it have been like for someone like him with with bucket loads more compassion than I have to meet their gaze? And and, and what must it have been like for him to to, to meet them and encounter them, knowing that he could help them as well? Completely different to what it's like for for us, isn't it? Well, in today's passage, we meet another case of desperation. So let's see uh, who he is and how Jesus responds to him. Um, I think this is a tremendously familiar passage to, to many of us, isn't it? But let's, let's, as we walk through it, put ourselves in, 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 uh, uh, in that place and imagine what it was like. Verses 1 and 2 um, have set the scene uh, for us already that, that, that we've seen already. Jesus has spent some time in the countryside to get away from the crowds, but now he's back in Capernaum, the town where he was living. Uh, word spreads that he's back, and so the crowds descend on him again, a bit like the kids uh, at church when the biscuits come out. Suddenly it's like, that <laughs> they're there. There's a scrum around him. The house is busier than a, a London tube at, at rush hour. Jesus is teaching them. Everyone's listening. There are people peering in the windows, squeezing in the door. But then at, at the back of that scrum of people, another group arrive. Five people, four of them are walking, and one of them is being carried by them. He's probably a young man, because Jesus calls him son later on, but he's there lying on his stretcher, being carried by his friends, because his legs don't work. He's paralyzed. We don't know how long he's been paralyzed for, but he's paralyzed. He's helpless. And so these guys come to the back of the crowd. Their hearts sink, because they see how busy it is. They think, oh, goodness, we're never going to get to meet Jesus. They, they look at how big the stretcher is and, and think we, there's no way of getting, getting through that. We're, we're, we're not going to manage it. But what do desperate people do? Well, they do anything they can to get help. So these guys don't mind making a scene at all. They, they say, quick lads, up, up on the roof. The roofs uh, were flat in those days. There was a staircase up the side of the house. And so they clamber up the staircase, which is quite hard, isn't it, with a, a stretcher. But they, they, they get there. They get up to the flat roof put the guy down on his, on his bed, so you wait there, let us sort this out, and they start digging with their hands. And before long, in the room below, the hot and sweaty and crowded room below, there's a sound from up above, and the dust starts coming down from the ceiling, and soon enough, there's a hole there, and people are wondering what's going on, and as the hole gets bigger, they see four faces, and then the hole gets bigger and bigger again until it's big enough for a bed to be lowered down on. What a, what a scene. At some point in all of this, presumably Jesus stops teaching and, uh, and, and waits for all this to, to kind of finish, for, for the dust to settle, as it were. And there is the man before Jesus. And there's silence. The man has got where he wanted to be. He's found his way to Jesus, courtesy of his friends. What will happen next? Well, he looks at Jesus, and Jesus meets his desperate gaze. 
and the expectant gaze of his friends. I don't know if they were still up on the roof, kind of peering down, or whether they'd, they'd uh, shimmied down the, the, the ropes as well. Uh, who knows? But the whole narrative pauses, and, and they wait for Jesus to respond, and Jesus says those, those shocking words, and we need to see the shock of them, don't we? My son, your sins are forgiven. It's a bit, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? You know, perhaps the man kind of looks down at his legs and says, Jesus, I'm, my legs are the problem, thanks. Perhaps his friends say something, no, no heal him, Jesus. Look at his shriveled legs. Perhaps the crowd are are murmuring. Who knows? But Jesus' point is made, isn't it? The man's greatest need was for forgiveness. Jesus, the kindest, most compassionate, the wisest man that has ever lived, whose heart is full of tenderness and love and mercy. Jesus, the perfect man and fully God to boot apparently ignores this man's desperate look for healing and says and said, your sins are forgiven. It's the priority of forgiveness, isn't it? That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Jesus has come to deal with sin, to forgive it. He isn't saying this man's paralysis was because of his sin. He's just diagnosing him with a deeper and more serious condition than paralysis. Just like a a doctor deals with a heart attack before he deals with a broken finger, Jesus deals with sin as a priority. Sin, that that rebellion against God, which we're all guilty of, that puts us first. Sin that is evidenced by all sorts of wrong that we do and all sorts of pain in the world. Jesus says, that's your biggest problem. I forgive it. I can deal with that, he says. And it, it, it's a shock, isn't it? Let, let's pause there and get ourselves in the story. Because there is, to one degree or another, a desperation in all of our hearts and lives too, isn't there? We all have our problems. Um, often preachers have to spend a few, a few minutes or hours in their study thinking, what, what, what are the problems I should give examples of that might connect with people? And, and we come up with our list. But you know what makes you desperate better than I do. So what is it for you? Only you know what really bothers you and troubles you. What is the, the heaviest weight in your life to bear, the biggest burden? You know that. So what is it for you? I'll give you my list anyway. But you'll know better. You know, it's a difficult job, an impossible colleague, Someone that you live with who makes life hard for you. It's depression, it's anxiety, it's cancer, it's busyness, it's sheer exhaustion, it's financial struggles, it's worries about the future, it's discouragement. What is it that you would do anything to get or to change? Metaphorically, get up on that roof and dig through it. At all costs, I want that sorting. What is it? And then imagine doing the equivalent of what these five men did and, and, and you, you kind of pick all of that stuff up, whatever it is that, that's burdening you, weighing heavily on your heart and your mind. You, you, you pick it up, you, you, you take it to Jesus on this big rucksack on your back, whatever the image is that's helpful for you. You're desperate for help, so you bundle it up and you fight your way through to the crowds to get to Jesus and you plonk it down in front of him and say, 
Jesus, help me. Can you just sort this out, please? And Jesus says back to you, your sins are forgiven. How how would that feel? But that is why Jesus came. To tell us that we can be forgiven, and as he will go on, to show us how we can be forgiven, but to tell those who have faith in him that we are forgiven, preaching that good news. That's Jesus' priority, dealing with our sin. And, and really, the rest of our passage, while there are lots of details we could go into, is just, uh, it's just uh, ramming home that same message. We see the priority of forgiveness in the healing that Jesus goes on to do. That's what happens next, isn't it, from verse 6 onwards. Uh, the scribes who, who have watched this unfold, they get upset with Jesus. They're confused. They're thinking only God can forgive sins. Uh, so who does this guy think he is? And of course, they're dead right. Only God can forgive. But Jesus replies to them there in verse 9. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And then he goes on to heal the man with just a word. He does what seems to be the harder thing, because the the healing is seemingly harder, because it's very verifiable. It's riskier, if you like. Jesus would be outed as a fraud immediately if he, if, he, if he tried to heal but failed. So he does that seemingly harder thing, visually, to prove that he does have the authority to forgive sins, as he's just declared. You see, that's the point of the healing. So Jesus certainly healed out of compassion. We saw that last week, uh, didn't we, in, in chapter 1, verse 41, moved with pity, he healed the leper. So Jesus certainly heals with compassion, but here he heals to prove a point. It's not that he suddenly changes his mind and says, oh, okay, go on then, because I'll heal you too. No, the motivation for the healing, verse 10, so that you might know that the Son of Man, that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The motivation for the healing is so that everyone would know, everyone who was there in the room on that day and everyone who has read about it for thousands of years ever since, so that everyone would know Jesus has authority to forgive sins. That's what Jesus wants us all to know about him. He is the one with the authority. That is why he came. And we see that same priority in the next two chunks. We'll look at them more briefly. But in the next episode there, in verse 13, Jesus meets Levi, a tax collector, and calls him as one of his disciples. Tax collectors were sinners with a capital S in the people's eyes. If you wanted an example of a bad person back in those days, a tax collector was your man. You know, we think drug dealers or greedy corporate bankers or or playground bullies... Tax collectors were the baddies back then. I should just say tax collectors are not evil now. Um, I did my tax return on Friday, and laborious as it was to trawl through all that paperwork for the taxman, the taxman is not my enemy. We should pay our taxes willingly and diligently. But back then, they were the traitors. They had betrayed God's people and sided with the Romans instead. And here is Levi, one of them, and Jesus spots him. And Jesus knows who he is, and he knows what he is, because 
Levi's been caught red-handed. He's sitting there at his tax booth. His sin is, is, is there for all to see and for Jesus to see. And Jesus looks at him and says, I want you in my gang. Come and follow me. Why? Because that's exactly the type of person that Jesus has come for. He has come to declare and provide forgiveness for the worst of the worst. And we see the same in the next paragraph as well, don't we? Levi follows Jesus and takes him back to his house, and he brings all his tax-collecting mates with him, as well as a whole host of other um, uh, uh, sinners, um, with all the different uh, types of sinner that that might have been and meant. And they're all there with Jesus hanging out with them, reclining at table is the phrase. It's a picture of fellowship and acceptance and love and warmth. He's eating and drinking and chatting to them. Once again, the religious lot looking on in verse 16 object, but Jesus' answer is as clear as day. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Physician just means doctor. But it's those who are sick who need a doctor. I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Okay. I've come for sick people. These are sick people. These are my people. I've come for sinners. These are sinners. They are mine. The priority of forgiveness, of dealing with sin. That's what's uh, working its way out in, in each of these little episodes. So what are we to make of it? If that is Jesus' priority, uh, what do we make of it all? I, I want to suggest three uh, important take-home messages for us. Um, first one is this. The best thing that Jesus can do for you is to forgive your sin. The best thing that Jesus can do for you is to forgive your sin. It's the unmissable lesson from this, this episode. And that has to be the thing that we come to Jesus for first. So the question to ask of ourselves, of me, of you, is to ask if that is true for you. Is that why you have come to Jesus? Is that why you do come to Jesus, if you do? Whether it's decades ago that you first trusted Jesus, or whether you haven't trusted him at all yet, the message is the same. Come to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. For all the wrong things that you do for the mistakes that you have made in the past, for the mistakes that you will make in the future, for the lies, the selfishness, the unfaithfulness, the impurity, the greed, the idolatry, the jealousy, the lovelessness, come to Jesus and hear him say, your sins are forgiven, and know that that is the best thing that he can say for you. You will never hear a better word than that. You won't. And so this passage is such a helpful reorientation of what really matters. All of these other problems that crowd into our lives and, and cause our day-to-day -day stresses and pains, Jesus knows them, yes. He sees them, yes. He feels them and sympathizes with them, yes. But he says to all of us, let me deal with your greatest problem first. Let's tackle that one. Yes, I can sort everything else out too, just like I sorted the man's legs out. I might do it right now for you really soon, or you might have to wait till eternity. But right now, let's talk about your biggest problem. Do you find it hard to, to kind of reorientate your heart in that way? I think I do. 
And maybe the paralytic did too. We don't, we don't know exactly how he responded. But right now in heaven, if we can imagine it, the paralytic is there. And what's he singing Jesus' praise about most loudly? Jesus forgave my sin that day. Maybe the most helpful way of of cultivating that reorientation about the priority of of our forgiveness of sins is to start your prayer times like that as as a discipline. We come to him uh, regularly, hopefully, in, in prayer, and all of our problems and our thoughts are there in our mind, aren't they? And we want to get them out, we want to talk about him to them, and he loves to listen to them. But make it a discipline to start by considering your sin. Start your prayer times with that, with thanks and gratefulness that he forgives sin. So, First big take, and the best thing that Jesus can do for you is to forgive your sin. Secondly, Jesus really can and does forgive your sin. If you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus, you are forgiven. But it's quite possible that you find that hard to believe and easy to forget. I know that's my experience, and I I imagine it's yours too. Perhaps one of your struggles is is just recognizing how completely and authoritatively sin has been just smashed by Jesus. It's been dealt with. That's the point of this miracle, isn't it? That's why he healed the man, to show to us that he has authority to deal with sin. And look how he did it. He did it with a word. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all and went home. The people were astonished. Jesus did the impossible in a word, in an instant. It it was all of grace, it all came from Jesus. The man contributed nothing apart from his helplessness lying there. It might well be that that remembering that helplessness is, uh, helplessness is the key for you to really believe that your sins are forgiven. I think it's, it's possibly the biggest blocker to, to knowing and feeling that we're forgiven is that we forget how one-sided forgiveness is. When we see what a miracle it is that only Jesus can do, that we can contribute nothing to, and then we see Jesus dealing with it so decisively and authoritatively like this, that's what we need to remember when we begin to doubt our forgiveness. Because if, we, if we're looking at ourselves, then we will be looking less at this amazing authoritative Jesus. So if you have a particularly tender conscience, if, if some of your sins just feel too big, too weighty, too recurrent, too shameful, and you need to be reminded of just how forgiven you are, just how able Jesus is to deal with that all himself, Take this miracle as a picture of it. Picture yourself as as lying on a bed, unable to move, unable to help yourself, unable to hide it. And you're there at Jesus' feet, and he knows it all, and he sees it all, and he sorts it all. 
It sounded a bit like a train announcement there, didn't it? See it, say it, sorted. So it's actually a bit like that. Jesus sees it, and he says it, and it is sorted. So sometimes the most helpful thing we can do is stop pretending that we are not helpless. Knowing and admitting your helplessness is the best way for you to have confidence that you're forgiven. The more helpless you feel, the more you'll be able to look at Jesus and say, yes, he came for me. So let there be no doubt in your mind, no doubt, that if you have faith in Christ, your sins are emphatically forgiven by Jesus. It's all from him. You can come to Jesus for the first time right now. Maybe that's who you are and where you are. You haven't yet trusted in him. But on Sunday, the 1st of October, 2023, you can come to Jesus and say to him, I am helpless, please forgive me. You can do that if you're really young. You can do it if you're much older. But the offer is there. You need to do nothing apart from bring your helplessness. Acknowledge your sin. And trust in this one who has authority to forgive it. Maybe you can do that right now. Maybe you want a conversation afterwards about it. There's nothing to stop you. We're not really used to saying, please forgive me, I don't think. I think we're really used to saying, sorry. If you're anything like me, you say sorry all the time because you make loads of mistakes and, and you hurt and upset people all the time. And so we have to say sorry all the time. But, but it's a different thing, isn't it, to go beyond the sorry and say, please forgive me. It's a harder step because it admits that helplessness. It admits dependence upon the other person to forgive you. Okay? It's saying, I can't force you to forgive me. Please forgive me. Please forgive me is what we can say to Jesus. And we don't force him to. He, he's there offering it to us. He dealt with sin on Good Friday. He proved it on Easter Sunday. Let there be no doubt in your mind that he really does forgive sin. He's got the power to do it, the authority to do it, and the willingness to do it too. And we see that in, our, in the final thing as well. The final take-home. Sinners are the only people on Jesus' case list. Okay? Picture a doctor's waiting room. I'll be there tomorrow morning. The people sat in the waiting room coming in. When you say, what can I do for you? They say, well, I'm fine, I'm healthy. Then you say, next, please. Off, off you go, I'm not, I'm not dealing with you. Next, please, let, the, let, let the, the sick come here, please. Sinners are the only people on Jesus' case list. It's the lesson from the last few verses, isn't it? There was no more motley and undeserving crew than Levi and the crowd of sinners that were in his house. And Jesus was there with them, as we saw, reclining with them, having that fellowship with them and saying, these people are, are, are my gang. That's why I came, for people like this. These are the ones I'm going to hang out with. These are the ones I'm going to give my time to. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's be really clear. Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to let these guys in as well, as well as the rest of the respectable lot. Look how kind I am. I'm going to let them in too. No, he's not saying that, is he? 
He's saying, these are the ones I'm going to let in. These are the ones I came for. So if you want to be in my gang, you need to come in here with them and with me. This means, doesn't it, that the, the self-righteousness in us is something we must hate and be scared of and take seriously. When we look down on people who seem to be less spiritual than us, less deserving than us in any way, if that's our heart, Jesus will feel very distant to us. He might even be very distant to us. So the question for us is, are we willing to put ourselves in the company of the worst of the worst in your eyes? Do we say about ourselves, I am sick, I need a doctor, and bring all of that desperation with us? Maybe just a thought lesson to, to, to help you. Who, who are the worst people in your mind? Is it, the, is it the drunkards and the promiscuous lot in town on a Saturday night? Is it the foul-mouthed yobs at the back of the bus? Who, who are they in your mind? Who are the worst of the worst? Well, whoever they are, picture them and picture Jesus with them. And he is hanging out with them. He is prioritizing them. He is eating and drinking with them. He's probably laughing with them. He's having a good time, I reckon, because he loves these guys. And Jesus says, come in and join us. Come in and join my party here with all of these people. How easily would you go in and join? Are you happy to say, yes, I need Jesus in the same way that they do? How comfortable would you feel in that company? The reality is, clear as day, I think, from this passage, is that we all need to be willing to place ourselves in that company if we want to place ourselves in Jesus' company. If we want anything to do with Jesus, if we want him to have anything to do with us, we need to place ourselves alongside whoever the worst of the worst are. If we can do that, then have no doubt Jesus is the man for you. Because it's not about whether you're good enough for Jesus, it's about whether you know that you're bad enough for him. And what a message that is for us, if we will admit it. What a message of good news for us who are sinners. And what a message of good news for us to tell others about too and invite them in. Not pretending that we're good, but acknowledging that we're bad. Come and join us here at church, this hospital for sinners. Come and meet Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly uh, Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, the one who came to save sinners. As painful a thing as it is to pray, we long that you would reveal to us the depths of our sin, that we might come to Jesus with desperation and with utter confidence that he is the man for us. Please show us our sin and show us the love and grace and authority of Jesus to deal with it. Give us confidence and rejoicing in him, we pray. Amen.